0: The psalmist calls us to a time of fellowship with our Lord Jesus Christ this morning. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle. Or it will not stay near you. So often we like to think about horses. I know my daughter loves horses. And they like to think about how easily it would be so fun to ride a horse and have all that fun riding them. But a horse takes lots of training. And as this verse says, you have to have the bit And the bridle in order to steer that horse. And the word of God tells us, don't be like that. Let your life be governed by the Lord. He says, I will guide you with my eye. That's something very important to have God's eye guiding us. And it's through the preaching and the teaching of God's word. The coming together of us together in the fellowship of the body that God does guide us with his eye. So this morning, as the word of God is preached to us, let God's eye guide you.
1: Let me invite you to turn to your Bibles in the book of Esther, chapter 3, as well as locate the outline in your bulletin. Esther 3 is where our study now has brought us, and uh, each chapter is just a wonderful description of God's providence and uh, another facet of it. So Esther uh, chapter 3 will be the text that we are dealing with this morning. I'm going to read the first two verses, and then uh, we will gather together and study this wonderful text. As this is indeed God's infallible word, the word of our King and our Lord. Let me invite you out of reverence and respect for our king and our our lord to please stand at the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of our lord. After these events, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, and advanced him and established his authority over all the princes who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage uh, to Haman. For so the king had uh, commanded uh, concerning him. But Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage. That's far the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word, this incredible chapter, as it gives such light to our paths. um, As we live and move and have our being as sinners in a difficult world. Nevertheless, children of the living God, God, we pray that you indeed would shine the light of your word on our path, that the bit and bridle would not be our sin, that our sin would not be that which drives us, or our flesh, or the desires of the heart, but Lord, you and your word, and your countenance, and your character, and your glory. We entrust this time to you, Lord, now. Bless it, we pray. Open our eyes. Give us unction and power as we study together. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Amen. Please be seated. As we are looking at a book that details the glory of God's providence, it behooves us to keep in our minds what indeed we mean by providence. And we've defined it it's basically care, right? So God made the world, He made the physical world. Now providence describes His act of caring for it, upholding it, and uh, um, keeping it uh, together and moving it along. If you wanted a formal definition, You've got it there in your bulletin as well. You'll see it. Westminster Shorter Catechism defines it as such. God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. From this very basic definition, we conclude a couple things about God's care for this world. First of all, would you notice it's unlike the care of man. It's holy. Holy means other, set apart, different. God's care for this world, God's care for what he's doing here is not subject to decay, to change, uh, to changing his mind. It's not done by uh, creatures who are um, oftentimes um, uh, capricious or um, done with an eye toward self. No, God's care for this world is holy. Secondly, you'll note on the definition, it's perfect. Um, it's according to his perfect wisdom, which means that there's no mistakes. Everything that is going on in this world is for his glory and our good. Everything in your life. Thirdly, we note from this definition that it's according to his almighty power. It's unthwartable. Satan, man, cannot thwart what God is going to do and what God's ordained and what God is doing with regards to his plan and his purpose on this earth. And lastly, And we notice that it encompasses all his creatures and all their actions. And this is where it begins to get a little question, a little dicey, a little um, um, raising up a lot of questions. How far does that go? All his creatures and all their actions. For example, Matthew 19, 29, Christ said, Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your Father. We know from this verse that. That God's care extends even to the, to the death or the falling of a sparrow. Or, as the text goes on, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Likewise, God's providential care extends to the very fact that he has ordained the number of growing hairs on your head right now. Incredible. We read about it in Second Chronicles 18. Micaiah, you know the background, informed King Ahab that he, he was going to die in this coming battle. And Ahab, thinking he can pull one over God, uh, tricked God. In essence, he, well, I'm not going to go as king. I'll dress up as a common foot soldier and stay well away from battle. So no one will even, I'll I'll be perfectly safe. And you know how the text reads. And a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel in the joint of his armor. Incredible. God's care extends even to the flight of arrows in battle. So how far, how far, what's the scope of God's care for this world? How far does his providence extend? Does it include the evil that occurs in this world? Does it include your sin? How far does it go? Our passage this morning helps us answer that question. So we're going to look at this te- uh, text, walk away through as we've been doing it, and uh, draw application at the very end. Let's begin by looking at the, the text, verses 1 through 6, a day in the life of two ungodly men. Let's look at them. Verse 1. After these events, the events of his wife, uh, or actually it's not um, his uh, wife, but after uh, Avastis' uh, success with Saul and Esther and the whole bit, we're now seven years in, uh, later than where we were uh, before. After these events, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and established his authority over all the princes who were with him. We'll learn two things about Haman in this introduction. Okay? The first one is, is that Haman um, was advanced as um, a prime minister, or in the um, Egyptian language, Grand Vizier. He was second to the king. That's the most powerful position in that empire, Grand Vizier. That's, the, that's what Haman was uh, promoted to. Secondly, we learn about Haman is that he's an Agagite. Now, uh, we need a little bit of background because it's important to this story. If you go back to the time when God's people were uh, just um, in the Exodus, just delivered by God, God brought them to um, Rephidim. And there, that was the place where you know where Moses struck the rock to get water from the the rock. And at Rephidim, God's people survived. Well, at that moment, they were in, if you you know a map or look in the back of your Bibles, the southern part of Palestine south to Mount Sinai is the wilderness of Zin. Or sin, And that wilderness is where this kingdom, the Amalekites, dwelt and lived. Okay, that's the Amalekite territory. So they're at, at Rephidim, and at this moment, the Amalekites attack. And their goal was to wipe them out, to completely destroy God's people. And this is the time where Moses raises his hands and God's people prevail. And then he falls because he can't hold his hands up and then the Amalekites prevail. That's the exact time. Well, when God's people win this victory, better yet, when God wins this victory through his uh, people, he pronounces a curse upon the Amalekites. And that curse was they were to be wiped out. What they want to do with God's people, God was going to do to them. you are going to... I'm brothers and sisters, God at this moment in Exodus 17 is advancing his redemptive program. So when the Amalekites were attacking them, they were not simply attacking any old people. They were directly opposing and attacking God, and they knew it. So God pro- uh, pronounces this curse that they'd be wiped out. Well, years later, God's people are now going back to the Promised Land the second time, and this time for the last time, they're going up. And what do we read? We read in Deuteronomy chapter 25, the Amalekites are, are these, this wicked people who have a hatred for God and his people. Once again, are there. Deuteronomy 25, 17 Remember, this is Moses telling God's people, remember what Amalek did to you along the way when you came out from Egypt, how he met you along the way and attacked among you all the stragglers at your rear when you were faint and weary, and he did not fear God. So we know this is a direct attack against God, and, and, and as cowardly as this is, they didn't take on the hardened warriors. No, they already got beat once. No, what they're doing is they're, they're taking out the weak the aged, the young. And so Moses says, remember this, because when you go into the promised land, well, well, I'll pick it up, verse 19. Therefore, it should come about when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your surrounding enemies in the land which the Lord your God gives you as inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You must not forget. Brothers and sisters, that's justice. Now, there you may, you may um, flinch or blush at the concept of, of a holy war, not a just war, but a holy war, where God calls His people to wipe out a people completely. You may blush at that, but my guess is most people who blush at that in the church do not blush at the last judgment. Well, you know what what a holy war is it 's the last judgment before the, uh, the time okay it 's God saying. Um, and the last judgment, man, woman, uh, children, be gone from me. It's everlasting uh, punishment. That's what a holy war is. It's God declaring a, um, a, a judicial sentence against a people before the last judgment. Well, that's what he declared against Amalek. And that is why 400 years later, when the first king sitting on the throne in, in Israel is in his uh, greatness, so to speak, Saul, God told Saul, Saul... Wipe them out. Those promises from Deuteronomy and Exodus 17, the times come now for you to wipe them out. And what do we read? What Saul did? Well, Saul, unfortunately, sought an alliance. He conquered them, kept back the king Agag, key name there, king Agag, who all of his descendants would be known as Agagites, which is Haman. He spared king um, Agag, and so God sent Samuel who then did the work. First Samuel 15, Then Samuel said, Bring me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. And Agag said, Surely the um, bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hewed Agag to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. Alright, so that was Saul. Now, Advanced the tape 500 plus years, and now we're at the time of Esther. And Haman, who was an Agagite, he was a direct descendant of King Ag- of Agag, he could have been a king had that nation uh, been autonomous. Advanced that, that, that scene, you got this man who inherited from his great, 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 great grandfather his hatred. Of the people of God, no fear in this man's eyes of God. All right, that's an introduction to Haman. Next couple of verses introduce us to the next key player, which is Mordecai. We've already talked about these people in the introduction. Verse two, and all the king's servants who were at the king's gates bowed down and paid homage uh, to Haman. He's been exalted to grand uh, vizier, rightly so. Why? For the for so the king had commanded uh, concerning him. Now mark that phrase in your mind. But Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to, uh, to Mordecai, why are, you not, why are you, mark it again, transgressing the king's command? Now it was when they had spoken daily with him, he, w- he would not listen to them, that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's reason would stand, for he had told them he was a Jew. With this, we're introduced to Mordecai, which I've already... We've already looked at a little bit about him. He was a compromised, compromised Jew, right? So the Jews uh, worldwide at this point are, are in compromise, both in Palestine. They're, at this time in redemptive history, they they are they are they're, they're you know intermarrying. They're they're, they're, they're just uh, diving into uh, sin. God's people who who did not go back. They were the the paganized worldly uh, Jews, and so. The state of Judaism, the state of Christianity this time was pretty bad. Well, Mordecai, as we've seen, is a compromised, compromised Jew, right? And and you'll see that if if you've doubted it thus far, you'll see it now in this chapter quite well. Um, Notice, as a compromised, compromised Jew, this text, as it introduces Mordecai, stresses not just once, but twice. What is this text showing us? At this moment, what it's showing us is the lawful authority of the land has said, bow to my grand vizier. And Mordecai chooses not to. Okay? Now God's word, even at this time, was clear. You you are subject to the governing authorities. It became very clear in Romans 13. Listen to the text. Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinances of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon them of themselves. So Mordecai is not rebelling against Haman. The text is very clear. He's not. This isn't about Haman. Now, Mordecai may think it's about, about Haman, but we know what this text is telling us. It's not about Haman. It's about the decree of the king. Will Mordecai submit to the governing authority or won't he? And he chose not to. Now, many people, many commentators believe Mordecai is a hero in this text and he is a hero in this uh, book as as will Esther become. But brothers and sisters, as you know, the hero of this book is not Mordecai. It's God. All God's heroes in Scripture are subject to their frail humanness. Noah was an alcoholic. He struggled with alcohol. Abraham a liar. Right? I mean, we can go on and on and on. David, we don't excuse their sin even though they're heroes. We may look at David and say, "Man, a, a man after God's own heart." But when we get to Bathsheba, we do not say, "Well, he's justified there." That was a good thing. We say to the world, to the non-believer and to one and all, that's sin. What he did was wrong. So Mordecai may become this fantastic hero in this book. God's the real hero, obviously. At this point, you must see, brothers and sisters, this man's in rebellion. This man's a compromised, compromised Jew. Okay, first off, we know from the rest of Scripture, I'll give it to you, Genesis 23, 27, 33, 1 Samuel 20, 1 Samuel 24, 2 Samuel 14, 18, 1 Kings 1, that Jews bowed before kings. And before other people, it was not a big deal in the Old Testament to bow the knee before before another man. Secondly, we know from this text that the only one not bowing before Haman is Mordecai. All the other Jews are bowing. Okay, so either now... uh, the commentators, many of them say, well, well, there, there must have been that this must have been Haman worship. So so somehow he's not bowing. He's right not, not to bow because Haman, Haman's wanting to be worshipped. Or they they go on and on. But it's, it's just not there. This text is not being nice to Mordecai. Mordecai's choosing not to bow. Um, and then secondly, if you know anything about Persian culture, you know if you're grand of Vizanir. Vizier, prime, a minister—you can't get that unless you bow before a So Mordecai, to become that office which he will be uh, become, has obviously no problem bowing because he wouldn't be there if he wasn't bowing before this this king. So the issue here is not about uh, religious mores or religious conscience. This man is an arrogant man. He's proud, and he's not going to bow. Um, Bible commentary F. B. Huey put it uh, this way: It's also unlikely that Mordecai could have been elevated next uh, to the king if he had refused to kneel before Xerxes. The most probable reason was, as the Targum uh, suggests, and the Targum was an Old Testament old um, uh, document which um, was uh, uh, translating the Hebrew into the, into the Aramaic, and in time it became a commentary, a Bible commentary by the scribes on the Old Testament Hebrew. So, as he says, as one uh, target uh, suggests, Mordecai's pride, that's the reason why. No self-respecting Benjaminite would bow before a descendant of the ancient Amalekite enemy of the Jews. All right, so that's Mordecai. That then brings us back to Haman, verses 5 through 6. When Haman saw that Mordecai neither bowed nor paid homage to him, Haman was filled with rage. Now, that's a little extreme, but you'll see why He is filled with rage at at one moment. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. I'm not going to kill this man. For they had told him who the people of Mordecai were. Therefore, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews. The people of Mordecai who were throughout the whole um, kingdom of Ahasuerus. Um, Amazing. Now, you've got to realize, brothers and sisters, this is the sad part of the story. Mordecai was the catalyst of all of this. So chapter 3 introduces us to this horrible time in the history of God's people where the death sentence is proclaimed and carried out. And if you were living at that time when all this was going on, how many Jews, I wonder, would have thought, well thanks Mordecai. You know, I hope you I hope you're satisfied in your pride. Because it's your pride that's led to all this. Okay? Now, why that's so important, brothers and sisters, is... Do you understand most of the things that you and I suffer? Hear this. Most of the things you and I suffer in this life, taking your life as a whole... Most of the things you're going to suffer are going to be the consequence of your own sinful choices. That's where God's people were at this point. Across the entire empire... God's people were where they were because of their own sinful choices. And you know what that led them to believe? That led them to believe that God could never care for them. Oh yes, God's in the heavens. God's on the throne and we are worshiping him. They weren't not worshiping him. They were trying to be faithful to him. I put that in quotes because they weren't trying very hard. But brothers and sisters, the sin led to sin, which led to sin, which led to sin, which meant their entire life was a life of compromise, and they knew it. And so God was so far away, and that's why Esther, so beautifully, more inclined to show it than say it, demonstrates that very fact, by the fact that God's name is not mentioned in this book. Why is it not mentioned? Because from the perspective of the Jews, God was not part of their lives. This is them struggling in their own sin because of their own doings, and this is, you know, what you know what God's doing? He's up there in the heavens looking and saying, Suffer, Christian. Suffer, my people. Just suffer the effects of your sin. That's how we view him so often. That's how God's people were viewing him at this point. And notice, that's exactly where God's people are at. In a a ramped up on steroids moment, God's people are going to suffer because of the foolish acts or act of another Jew. All right, that leads us then to the planning for the destruction. Notice 7 through 11. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Hazarus, that's supposed to seven years after Esther became queen, that is the lot, uh, I'm sorry, um, per, that is the lot, was cast before Haman from day to day and from month to month until the twelfth month, that is the month of Adar. All right, because of Mordecai, Haman sought to wipe out the, the Jews. Notice what's going on in, in Haman's thinking. Okay, even though this is later on, it gives us the idea of what's Haman after, verses 8 through 9. Then Haman said to the king, There's a certain people scattered and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. That's true. Their laws are different from those of other um, people. That's also true. And they do not observe the king's laws. That is false. Jeremiah 29, submit to the governing authorities. Bill Holmes, live in them. Bless the nation in which you are. Not true of the Jews, except Haman, except uh, Mordecai. So, it is not in the king's interest to let them remain. And you don't want these guys in your kingdom. They're just going to stir up trouble. If it pleases the king... Let it be decreed that that they be destroyed. Whoa, guys. Not censored, not deported, not enslaved, but wiped off the face of the earth. Now, what king in his right mind would allow that? Well, a lot of kings in ancient history. And Xerxes being so detached from his kingdom, that's one of the characteristics of Xerxes that we've seen, so detached, he's like, sure, why not? Doesn't affect me. Right? He's still licking his wounds because of the the debacle in in Greece, right? Sure, go for it. However, knowing Xerxes as we know him, there would be one major obstacle of wiping out a whole people group, and that would be the lost funds due to taxation. But Haman thought of everything. Notice how the text goes on. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver, a massive amount, into the hands of those who carry on the king's business. Those are soldiers. So as we wipe out these people groups, the soldiers will gather all this money, and I guarantee you um, 10,000 talents of silver to put into the king's treasuries. All right, such was Haman's plan, which according to verse 7, took a year of, of, of casting die. So they didn't just sit there in one moment and cast. If you look back at verse uh, 7, they didn't cast the lot one day and in, 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 in choose in one day. They, it, the way that this text reads, they spent a year casting the lot. A whole year casting the lot, day after day, month after month, to discover when will God, when should God, when, when should I, according to the gods, kill or wipe out the Jews? And when they got to the month of Adar, that month fell there. So now a year later... After Mordecai, Haman's before the the king, saying, it's fallen on Adar. Now we're back at Nisan, which is the beginning of of the year. So now he is asking his plea is for the wiping out of God's people in about 11 months. A little bit more than 11 months, okay? Verse 10. Then the king took his signet ring. Oh, just by way of footnote, brothers and sisters. We're going to get there in, I don't know, three or four weeks. When we get to the point where God gives his, his people through Mordecai and Esther the ability to defend themselves, and a couple few hundred Persians are killed, you know the liberals do that passage? They say this is sick. That's why, that's why Judaism, that's why, why uh, Christianity is a sick re- uh, religion. They kill, in the name of their God, they kill these Persians. Brothers and sisters, and if you should be moved by that in three or four weeks, Please remember this. Haman didn't want to kill just a couple few hundred Jews. He wanted a holocaust of of complete proportions. And not one liberal commentary says anything wrong about that. Remember that. We'll come back to it. 11. Then the king took his signet ring from his hand, gave it to Haman. Talk about a man out of touch. The son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. See, now he has all power. And the king said to Haman, the silver is yours, and the people also, to do with them as you please. Two things here. The signet ring, full authority. He gives it to him. That means whatever he chooses to do, he could write whatever he wanted, and it's done. Secondly, it looks like he refuses the money, but that's a Persian cultural thing, ancient cultural thing. Um, If I offered you a lot of money, it'd be wrong for you to say, oh, thanks. You'd go, oh, no, no, really, really, no, no, don't, don't. And then, oh no, I, I, you know, insist. And eventually, you know, I would then pay it. He no doubt would have paid this. But for the sake of faith, the king can't sound that zealous. So he said, no, no, you take it. All right. That brings us then to the levity in the midst of pain. Verses 12 through 15. Then the king's scribes, just real quick, I'm going to steal some thunder here. Brothers and sisters, what we're reading here is about how man responds to your pain. The sad part is, what we're reading here is how most Christians at the time, and maybe even here, think how God responds to their pain. This is not your God, brothers and sisters. This is sinful man. But so many of us, in the midst of the vice, will wonder and say, God, don't you care? Notice verse... Then the king's uh, scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and it was written just as Haman commanded to the king's satraps, to the governors who were over each province and to the princes of each people. Each province, according to a script, each people according to its language, being written in the name of the king Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. And letters were sent by courier to all the king's provinces. Now, 127 provinces, you might think that might take months, but we already know it would only take seven days for this for this message to be sent across the entire kingdom. That's how, the, how great the road in the mail system was at Persia at this time. Secondly, it would only take one day for most of the cities around Susa, the capital, which is the main part of uh, Persia, to know. So the very next day, you could probably say 80%, 90% of the empire knew. Okay? Um, and the message was to destroy to kill and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, women and children, in one day. Boy, that sounds like the Amalekites in Deuteronomy, doesn't it? Picking off the young, the infirmed, the aged. Nothing's changed. Haman has the spirit, the passion, the hunger that his, that his uh, uh, progenitors had. Incredible. Um, the seizure of their, of, of their uh, possessions ought to plunder. A copy of the edict to be issued as law in every place was published to all the peoples so that they should be ready for this day. Imagine that. So there was a decree so that the entire nation has 11 months to prepare themselves to wipe out a race. The couriers went out impelled by the king's command while... Two things... While the decree was issued in Susa, the capital, that is, is significant. And while the king and Haman sat down to drink, the city of Susa was in a confusion. Two things were going on concurrently. One, the decree was issued and it immediately went out and then it was recorded in the, in, in the annals of the king. Now normally you record the annals of the king and then you'd be sent out. But we know about Haman. Haman's what? He's impulsive. So the moment it's passed, get going, we'll record it. So they're out there proclaiming it so that within no time, 90% of the empire knows about this and they can begin planning for 11 months hence. We can wipe these neighbors out. And then, secondly, while the city of Susa was in confusion, screaming, crying, a whole bed, King Haman, uh, the king and and Haman sat down to join. All right, two things are being emphasized here. One, the immediacy of the proclamation. It was known immediately. And secondly, the indifference of Haman, and more importantly, the king. Get this scene. People are weeping, and they are tearing their clothes. They are moved. Non-Jews are weeping and tearing their clothes because the friends are going to be wiped out What else is going to happen by this tyrant? And these guys are up there taking wine, making toasts, smiling, laughing, and having a gay old time. Incredible. And yet, brothers and sisters, it's so sad because that so often is how we view God. We'll return to that. All right, as I've referenced... This event came not by permission from God. You realize, chapter 3, in the scope of this book, chapter 3 is not by permission from God. Chapter 3 was by the will of God. Permission, we use that to say, well, you know, God's up there. He, He doesn't want it to happen he 's just allowing it to happen. oh no no, 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 this is very clear this book the way the structure of this book is very clear. this chapter is an essential part of god 's redeeming program okay and to show you that, go to chapter four i 'm stealing thunder from next week verses thirteen and fourteen so Mordecai 's in compromise, but it 's in chapter four this pressure this this, this the. The, the uh, crucible heating up draws out this man's faith. And in chapter 4, Esther and both Mordecai become the heroes that we, are, that we believe them to, to be at some point. And in the process of this, Mordecai makes these incredible redemptive statements. One of which is 14, which you know the verse very well, where, Haman's, uh, where Mordecai says, and who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. He's talking to Esther, trying to cajole her to go talk, and she's like, I can't do it. I'm going to die. Well, yes, you can, because, you know, if you don't, right? So we'll get to that next week. But his, his crowning point is, and who knows whether or not you have been uh, placed on the throne for such a time as this. Well, Let me translate it to you in the Hebrew, because that's not the Hebrew. That's the American, or that's the New American Standard. That's a lot of tra- uh, translations. In fact, New American Standard, ESV, King James, New King James, all put it that way, but it's a mistranslation, misleading. The translation should be: um, Who knows whether you have attained royalty for this time? Then no, no such. Who knows whether you have not attained royalty for this event? Mordecai is making a phenomenal statement. Esther, don't you understand? God ordained this. And God put you on the throne for this. That's the reason he put you there. God put you there, which means God ordained it all. What's the scope of God's providential care? It includes everything. The good, the bad, the right, the wrong. The noble, the wicked, the obedient, and the sinful. God has ordained it all. Now, you hear that and you go, boy, does that raise a couple problems in my mind. Um, Let me read my statement before I solve that problem. Truly, God's providence encompasses the evil and sinful acts of man. Mordecai's sinful pride and Haman's um, maniacal attempt to wipe out Judaism... All of this was in accordance with god 's eternal decree. Now, does that make any of you feel uncomfortable? Rhetorical question, you don't have to move it all. Make you feel at all uncomfortable we 're dealing here with what is known in theology as the doctrine of concurrence. Now a the great theological definition of that comes from the Westminster Confession. Let me read it to you. You have it up there and in your notes. OK. The doctrine of of, of concurrence states plainly that the almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness of God so far manifest themselves in his providence that it extendeth itself even to the first fall and all other sins of angels and men, and that not by a bare permission, it's not God sitting back and and, uh, permitting it, but such as hath joined with it its most wise and powerful bounding, God ordained it, and otherwise ordering and governing of them in a manifold stewardship dispensation to his own holy ends. But, that is chapter three of Esther. That's Genesis 50:20. That's Acts 13:48. That's John 15:50. You did not choose me, but I chose you. That's 1 Peter 2. They stumbled because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. Brothers and sisters, that's the doctrine of concurrence. Now, two questions that come up. One, does this make God the author of sin? And the answer is, absolutely not. Okay? Biblically speaking, no way. The, The Bible is very clear. God is not the author of sin. So to think otherwise is, is, is to sin. So you may go, I don't understand it. Let's start there. I don't understand it, but we do know from Scripture, God's not the author of sin. So how that fits together, how I try to articulate it this morning, you may, it may not suffice you. But you can't leave here saying, well, then I disagree with the doctrine. It's in Scripture. Well, then, well, then God's the author of sin. That's wrong, too. Okay, so whatever we we do, we need to speak where God has spoken, remain silent where he's silent. And if my explanation doesn't do it for you, that's okay. Allow the tension to remain before we start crossing out God's sovereignty or man's uh, responsibility. That being said, let's answer that. Does this make God the author of sin? No, it doesn't. How so? Brothers and sisters, sin is not something that's created. Sin is not an object. It's an act of rebellion. You don't don't create acts of rebellion. Acts of rebellion arise. Now, what's, what's the soil from which acts of rebellion arise in Scripture? What's the soil? The heart of man. James 1. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and, and he himself does not tempt anyone. He's not the author of sin. But each one is tempted and so sins when he's carried away and enticed by his own lusts. Brothers and sisters, we sin because of our sinful heart. Now this is the amazing, comforting truth is. That is true. What, who's the author of sin? Me. I'm the author of sin in my own life. I'm the author of sin. You're the author of sin, not God. But this is where this incredible doctrine comes to such comfort. Get this, brothers and sisters. God is not in the heavens sitting back, wringing his hands, hoping we won't sin. God ordains to use our own sinful proclivities. He doesn't force us to to sin. We sin because we love it. Yet God can even use that to bring about his good purpose and our good in his kingdom. Do you understand that? God's people are living in compromise. Why? Because they've compromised. Why? Because they've compromised. And they keep compromising. And they believe God has to be against them. And we learn from this chapter, brothers and sisters, God is never against you, His people. Never. In fact, He uses your sin, which causes more sin, which causes more sin, to bring about His glory, and you're good. How does He do that? I don't know. But He does. And that's the glorious doctrine of God's sovereignty of His providence, of the scope of His providence. You are where you are this very moment as a sinful people, yes, and the sinful decisions that you've made that may have made you lose a job or maybe cost you health or whatever you look back upon and go, oh, I wish it was different. Brothers and sisters, do you understand how great God is? He's ordained all things and will use those things which you have been fully a part of. To bring about His glory and your good. I mean, if we were to confess today our sin, the the real sin, the only God knows, we'd all blush. No one would want that. Hear the message. God has not given up on you. And God will use even that to bring about unsurpassing glory, blessing, Honor in his kingdom. Incredible. All right, there's more to this text. And let me quickly run you through a couple of them. As we've seen, this text must be read in light of the overall message of the book of Esther and the overall message of God's kingdom. And when we do that, we see a couple more things. Let me give you four. There's much more. Easily ten. But I'll give you four. One, the world is not a friend of grace. All right? All right. When Haman's passion to destroy the Jews redemptively, we just uh, stumbled. With his passion, we've, we have redemptively stumbled upon an ancient war that has been waging, raging until Christ cast the devil and his followers into the lake of fire. Understand that. We've stumbled upon a war here, brothers and sisters, that you may not even know exists. And that war began at, in a creation. I won't read the uh, uh, verses. Perhaps you can stick them up, Isaiah uh, 14. There's a war that's been raging from from before we were made. Somewhere in the creative days of six days, Satan rebelled against God. And in his rebellion, he wanted to be God. Well, what's his his glory? What's his goal? Revelation 12, 4 and, and 13. Put that slide up. His goal is to crush Christ and thus crush Christ's people. And if you look at redemptive history, you see this battle which you and I don't even know about. We live most of our lives ignorant of this battle. There is a massive battle going on between Satan and his demons and God where his passion is to snuff out Christ or to snuff out the gospel. And you see it throughout redemptive history from the very beginning all the way through. And this is just more of the same. In essence, we've been clued in to this battle. We see this battle in full force here when Haman, used by Satan, no doubt, Influenced by Satan, no doubt, attempts to, to, to crush and wipe out the Messiah. By wiping out the Jews, Satan wipes out the Messiah. Okay? Amazing. Um, so lest we think that this world is a friend of grace, brothers and sisters, it's not. There's hostility against Christ and his people. Secondly, Satan has and will always endeavor to crush Christ and his followers with the use of bribes. In our text, Esther 3, 10,000 talents. In roughly, what, 500 years, it'll be 30 pieces of silver. I'm sorry, it's 30 talents of silver. In roughly 500 years, it'll be 30 pieces of silver. Satan's followers are enslaved to him, they're blinded by him. And therefore, you know what he does to get them to kill us? He bribes them. Hear this carefully. You may have the idea that, you know what, those neutral people out there, they're nice people. They're basically good. Brothers and sisters, they're Bible. Satan can bribe them into thinking that it is in their best interest to crush and snuff out Christ, to crush and snuff out Christianity. That's why the liberals will, be, will just be on it like flies, right? Um, later on in this chapter, they killed these innocent Persians, attacking them, trying to kill them, Evil, evil Judaism, evil Christianity, evil Bible. Yeah, but they wanted to wipe them out uh, completely. Well, that, you know, culturally, we understand why they'd want that. That makes sense. Did you know, brothers and sisters, Islam is against homosexuality. In fact, they, they, if it goes to its natural end, they'll throw homosexuals off of tall buildings. You've seen those pictures. You don't hear a word about that, of criticism. You don't. But to have the notion that the Bible says homosexuality is a sin, needing a repenting of, and you'll be attacked. You'll be put in prison if you preach it in Canada. Brothers, do you understand there's a war going on? And Satan entices the non-believer into thinking they're doing God a favor. Right? By attacking you and attacking truth. Even though it's inconsistent. Notice with me, brothers and sisters, thirdly, Along with Haman's proclamation of death, the letter detailing our demise also was taken away by God. So put yourself in the shoes of, of the, God's people here. You just heard, read of a decree that in 11 months your neighbor is to take up arms and kill you, and there's nothing you can do about it. That'd be pretty brutal. Brothers and sisters, what you may not know is there's, there's a greater hostility towards us that we... That we We don't even think about it. And that's the certificate of debt that is drawn up the moment you're conceived. Containing Adam's first sin and all the subsequent sins that are hostile against you. And you know what? This is very similar. A decree written. You're going to die in 11 months. This is a decree. You're going to die and go to hell. What did God do with that decree? Just like what he does with this uh, decree. Colossians, when you were dead in your transgressions and uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt, consisting of the decrees against us and which was hostile to us. He's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Brothers and sisters, to make it even more amazing, this decree was signed and sent on the 13th day of Nisan. Do you guys know the significance of that? The 14th day of Nisan was Passover. God intended his people to read of this death uh, sentence, hear of it on the day that God removed their death sentence from Egypt. He wants you to see every. every dark hole in your life, every, every backset, set, every, every horrible mar upon you. He wants you to see that in light of the cross, Passover. Jesus Christ removing the greatest guilt and the greatest threat against you. What an incredible message. And lastly, unlike the kings of Persia, our king is not disconnected when it comes to our sorrows and pain. Ahasuerus, Haman, you know, Making toast. That's how we view God so often. Brothers and sisters, let me, let me take two minutes. We know God's a sympathetic high priest, Hebrews. Christ is a sympathetic high priest. In time and in action, let me see. Let me have you see one witness it for one moment. David is being chased around all of Israel because Saul's is after him. You know the story. Twice his life's in death. During all this time, David's trusting God. And finally, David gets to the end of himself and says, "I'm done trusting God, guys. I've trusted God. Look where it's led to." So he says, "I've done." So he abandons the life of faith, and he goes like an idiot, carrying Goliath's sword to Gath, which is where Goliath was from. <laughs> so he goes there, thinking, "Yeah, I'm taking matters in my own hand. I'm gonna do it." These are the two silent years of, of David the years of dark and bleakness in his life where he was feigning madness, acting like a wild man. I mean, this is the future king. This is the beloved of God. This man is is a man who's forgotten God. And so he's there, and he's miserable and the whole bit. Well, eventually, God brings him to his senses. And so he writes a series of psalms. And one of the psalms, Psalm 57. In it, he takes consolation with these words. Thou hast taken account of my wanderings. Put my tears in thy bottle. Are they not in the book? Now I've explained this to you quickly. In the ancient world, the way that they memorialized, memorialized whatever, a loved one, was when they cried over their death, they would, they would gather their tears in a bottle. None of their tears would go into a handkerchief or the ground. They'd go into a bottle and they'd seal this bottle. They'd place that bottle on, on the mantle or wherever else, a, a precious place to remember, to make memories that that I remember Johnny, I I remember this child, right? This text says, God doesn't miss one of your tears. He's not a hazardous. He's not up there when things are going rough and you feel he's turned his back upon you. He hasn't. He's storing up every one of your tears. And would you notice the tears that that, that he's storing up here in Psalm 57? David's not talking about the tears that come as you and I struggle to serve God. Those are the tears in Israel. These are the tears David is crying in his rebellion against God. He stores even those tears. That's how precious you are to God. Even when you end up feeding pigs in a faraway land, God has not forgotten you. He cares about you and he's storing your tears in his bottle. Brothers and sisters, the scope of God, there's a lot here. I'm, I'm, I'm throwing at you here. What great trees may God give us the grace to grab onto these, to feed on them all the week, and to be nourished in the inner man or woman unto the praise and glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your word. What an incredible description that you give us an accounting that you give us of how you and your providence cared for your people and brought them to the brink where they would then open their eyes like David did amongst the Philistines, like Mordecai and Esther did amongst the Persians, like Joseph did in the well. Lord, like so many of your people before and so many of us have, oh God, you've opened their eyes to behold. You love us. You've ordained it that we might know you and love you and serve you, that nothing is beyond your control. All things are according to your purpose and will. So, Lord, we can look at a shameful past and confess it to you knowing you love us and, and care. And we can, Lord, look to the future know that all things will be done according to your good pleasure, to your glory, and our growth in your grace. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for caring, for loving, for being our God. Give us the grace, O oh Lord, to appropriate this, to live in light of it, and to serve you accordingly. We pray this in Jesus' name.